Obviously, the principal driver behind why you would want to have a written contract with your clients is to protect your money. And what I mean by that is that, you know, money almost always is the reason why lawsuits are filed. And even within that subset of lawsuits, the reason why most lawsuits are filed is to get money back if the event is canceled. So long story short is one of the easiest tweaks that you can make to your contract is to make sure if you want to keep money, you being the videographer, if you want to keep money, then you need to make sure that your contract indicates that if the, if the contract is canceled because the event is canceled, then you keep X, Y, and Z money. It doesn't return. Um, we call that in the law liquidated damages. So you got to make sure that, you know, you have a very secure liquidated damages clause in your contract. Welcome to the Wedding Video Boss Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Santiago. We're at episode 12, and it's going to be a doozy because the wedding lawyer is here, and he answered all my questions about wedding contracts. Also, the difference between employees and freelancers, and we did a little bit of your questions as well. No need to worry anymore because now you can relax and listen to this episode that I should have called I'll Raise My Case. Rob Shank is a United States trial attorney and editor of WeddingIndustryLaw.com, an online resource of news, information, and legal materials for North American wedding professionals. Since 2012, Rob has become one of his country's most prominent wedding lawyers, a special designation for lawyers representing wedding and event industry professionals. He is the founder of WedForms.com, a database of downloadable contract templates, for wedding and event businesses. Rob's expertise has been featured in Time, Huffington Post Weddings, Petapixel, and Yahoo News. And he's spoken at WPPI, Wedding MBA, and Destination Wedding Planners Congress, among others. Friends, let's welcome Rob Shank. Hey Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks Paul, thanks for having me. First off, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your very, very busy schedule to be here. I've received a lot of questions for you, so We'll, we'll try to tackle them as much as we can and as quickly as we can. How did that sound? Sounds great, man. I'm, re I'm ready. Let's do it. Sweet. Okay. So first thing is for all the people who are starting out, how important is having a contract and what constitutes as a contract? Let's start at the end and, and, and move forward. So what constitutes a contract? A contract is essentially an exchange of enforceable promises. So I promise to give you $10 and you promise to hand over your 2004 Nissan pickup truck. That's okay. a contract. So if, if you agree to do something that you didn't already have to do and the other, in the exchange for something else that somebody doesn't already have to do, that is a contract. It can be oral, verbal. It can be over an email, a text. There's lots of different ways to form a contract, but essentially it boils down to you promising to do something in exchange for somebody else promising to do something. With regard to, is it good to have a contract? I'm, I'm assuming that you mean a written contract, a document that memorializes the exchange of the promises. And that is, in fact, emphatically, I would say yes. It's very important for somebody, not just starting off, but any business, to memorialize what they are agreeing to do on a piece of paper. Because if principally, everybody, you know, we're not computers. 
right? Yeah. So it's important that we remember what we agreed to, where we got to be, how much money it is, you know, what type of file they're going to get, what kind of licenses on the music that you have in the video. These type of things need to be memorialized on the paper so that everybody knows where everybody's coming from. I've been getting like a lot of people asking also like the length of the contract. They're always asking like, uh, can it be shorter than the usual of like all of these items? Does that matter? Or as long as the client puts their signature and agrees? Like, is there some type of legal requirement that says that a videographer contract must be two pages? No. I recommend that the contract be as long as it takes to protect you on the basic levels without scaring the client away. So it's kind of like whatever the market will bear. You know, when you buy a house, it's like a 60-page contract, right? You okay. probably won't close any clients if, you're, if your videography contract is 60 pages. But can you fully protect yourself in a paragraph? Probably not. So it's going to be somewhere between 60 pages and a paragraph um, that'll protect you without scaring away the potential leads. Okay, that's clear. So I wanted to ask you next, um, are there important elements that need to be in the contract especially for people in the wedding industry? Well, let me just say this as a disclaimer is that I can't provide exact legal advice for your every single member of your audience in their situation. And also states vary on what is required in contracts and how contracts are enforced. Generally, it's, it's pretty much the same, but you know, every state has their own special sauce. But with regard to like requirements, there aren't very many requirements other than what is called material terms. So, you know, generally those are going to be how much money are you getting paid? Where do you got to show up? What are you videoing? These type of things. Just the really basic core terms are required. Otherwise, you don't have a contract because you really haven't agreed to anything. If it's, if it's so ambiguous as to what you're doing, there probably is not a contract. So with regard to requirements... Generally, the basic stuff is required so that, you know, everybody knows, you know, what's going on. Okay, that makes sense. Would you know if there are any contract mistakes that people do that they could just change in order for them to save money? So, for example, for me, we actually added the arbitration clause in our contract. Just so if a client decides to sue us, they can't really take us to court. Is that something that's legal to do? Is that is that a good idea? Okay, so there's kind of two different questions like, you know, what are some basic things to do and whether or not you doing an arbitration agreement in your contract is, is legal or, or, in fact, best practices. Starting backwards again, arbitration is what we would call an alternative dispute resolution method. It's the alternative to filing a lawsuit in a court of law and achieving a recovery either through a judge, a bench trial, or a jury trial. Some people would say that that is an, a long, arduous process that isn't worth the money. And so, therefore, they've come up with this alternative means of resolving claims. And so that is arbitration. Arbitration is essentially where the parties agree to have a third party essentially adjudicate the matter without all of the legal processes like discovery, like um, sitting for depositions and these type of things. There are pros and cons to arbitration. 
I mean, everybody's agreed to arbitration. Essentially, if you own a cell phone, work out at a gym, have you know basic cable, these usually will have arbitration clauses in them. They're usually good in the sense of if you're a large company and you, you're dealing with thousands upon thousands of contracts, because it can be less expensive. You know, it comes to down to the person's preference, the, the company's preference in terms of videographers in the wedding industry. But sometimes arbitration can be more expensive and perhaps more time consuming than actual litigation. So you have to figure out, you know, these type of things in your particular jurisdiction. So, you know, for example, in Georgia, it will cost you, if let's say that a client stiffs you or whatever the reason is. You go down to the local magistrate court in Georgia, and if the matter is less than 15000 bucks, you pay $100. You can represent yourself. In other words, you can stand in for your company without their having to have an attorney and sue that individual, and you might get a resolution for that $100 or so dollars it takes to file the claim. If you have arbitration in your contract in Georgia then you're going to have to pay the arbitrator and arbitrators might be anywhere between $100 and $2,000 an hour. And they'd have to sit there all day and you pay them that rate in order to get a resolution to your issue. So it, from a cost perspective, sometimes it's more expensive, sometimes it's, it's less expensive. So that's just something that an individual needs to, to research. An individual business owner would need to research in their particular jurisdiction of whether or not arbitration is good or not. So also, are, are there any contract mistakes that if people just make tweaks in their contract that could save them, actually save them money? Have you ever had cases like that? Yes. I would say the principal driver behind why you would want to have a written contract with your clients is to protect your money. And what I mean by that is that, you know, money almost always is the reason why lawsuits are filed. And even within that subset of lawsuits, the reason why most lawsuits are filed is to get money back if the event is canceled. So long story short is one of the easiest tweaks that you could make to your contract is to make sure if you want to keep money, you being the videographer, if you want to keep money, then you need to make sure that your contract indicates that if the, if the contract is canceled because the event is canceled, then you keep X, Y, and Z money. It doesn't return. Um, we call that in the law liquidated damages. So you got to make sure that you know you have a very secure liquidated damages clause in your contract. That's actually a good segue to one of the the questions from the audience because they they were asking: Is there a difference if I call the payment a deposit as opposed to a retainer fee? Again, I'm not I'm not licensed in all 50 states. I'm licensed in five states. However, I'm not aware of any law anywhere. But again, I'm not offering legal advice at this moment. I'm not aware of any jurisdiction where, based on calling it a deposit or a retainer or an installment or a payment, would have any difference if the event is canceled. What I would emphasize is that you need to make clear what happens to the money, regardless of what you call it, if it's a deposit, installment, retainer. What happens to that money if the client cancels the event? Is it non-refundable? Is it refundable up to a certain percentage? Is it refundable up to a certain date and time? Those are the important factors with regard to whether that money is going to be allowed to be held by the videographer at the event.
it, it, the event is canceled rather than literally what it's called. That's the important part. Okay. There are some there are some areas of law where they don't apply to videographers. So, for example, there are real estate transactions where deposit is a term of art, and that doesn't have anything to do with with videographers. Same with the word retainer. Retainer is a word of art in the legal industry. The legal, lawyers are governed by different sets of laws and regulations than than a videographer is. Same with the, the word deposit in the, in the real estate realm, if that makes sense. That So there's a lot of misinformation online about, you know, don't call it a deposit because in this industry it doesn't go back or don't call it a retainer because in this industry it doesn't go back, uh, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, the key component is what comes after that word is what the judge is going to say, you know, controls. And you need to make sure that is explicit. So basically, whatever you put in your contract, as long as the client agrees to it, it's binding, right? So for example, like uh, if I say the deposit's non-refundable, then they agree to it, then it's okay. The arbitration clause, of course. So I was wondering, how do you deal with people who don't respect the contract? Like when, when you have a contract that says, you're paying me this amount of money for these number of hours, and they they go back to you and say, oh, can you do two more hours? Or some, some people say, film my, my rehearsal or else I'm going to give you a bad review. I've seen stories like that. How do you, how do you handle that? Well, to, uh, let me address the first thing you said is that, you know, if it's in the contract and they've agreed to it, then it's enforceable. That's not accurate. I mean, I could have a contract with you for you and I to go sell, you know, heroin to some elementary schools, but that's not going to be enforced because that's illegal. And so there are some some contracts, depending on what state you're in, even though the client would agree that they'll give you 100% of the contract value up front as a non-refundable um, payment to you, that in some states is not enforceable, even though they agreed to it. And a judge would essentially wad that part of the contract up and throw it away. So just because they've agreed to it doesn't mean that it's an enforceable clause. Down the road, some judge or jury might say otherwise. With regard to the second part of the question, what happens if the client doesn't respect the terms? If it's a term that's not going to be struck down by a judge or jury later, in other words, it's, it's proper under, under contract law, then if the client wants to change something after having agreed, the only way that you are obligated, you, the videographer, are obligated to go along with that change is if you want to. So in the instance of the client wants two extra hours, then unless, and we're assuming that wasn't contracted for, they just literally walk up to you and say, I want two extra hours, then you're free to decline that without being in breach of contract. Or you can say, yeah, I'll do that for, you know, whatever my overage rate is. And if, and they can say, sounds great. And you've just amended the contract and you work two hours, extra hours, and they pay you whatever the extra amount is. But one party can't unilaterally change the contract. I mean, that's not how it works. Okay. Because I know also of videographers and photographers who do this package for unlimited number of hours. And they go home right as soon as like maybe like 20 minutes as soon as the dancing starts 20 minutes into dancing they start going home 
is that like a smart idea to do like p- putting that unlimited hours in the contract probably not okay that seems like it possibly could be a misrepresentation okay so because the thing is that in the wedding industry it's so tricky because you know you're customer first and that's why having a contract and having them agree to it or just showing the contract to them when they demand for something it's kind of like tricky because you know we, we it's very personal to everyone but what if when you get a bad review from a couple that's not true like it's very inaccurate it's obvious that they did the review based on emotion how should we handle those things i guess the question is how do you handle a bad review well i mean I guess it comes down to this. We we live in the United States, and you're allowed under the First Amendment to say whatever it is that you like. It's constitutionally protected. What is not constitutionally protected is false statements that lower the reputation of someone or some business. Okay, so if it's not a false statement that is has the tendency to lower someone's reputation, then they can say all they want. So in reference to a bad review, if the review is true, I mean, there's nothing legally that you can do in terms of suing them. You can try to bargain with them, give them money to take it down. I don't know, but if, as long as it's true, truth is an absolute defense in claims for defamation. But if there are falsities in the review and it hurts your business, potentially you have a claim for defamation against that client. Okay. I've also been seeing these weird people online putting a bad review on your business and then they contact you saying, do you have to pay us this amount of money so that we can take out the review? And it's such a nightmare because there's like, you don't know who they are. So those things, you can't really do anything about them, huh? I've never heard of that in my life. So if somebody is giving you a bad review and then extorting you, is sending you an email saying, give me money and I'll take it down, then I would assume that you're not going to know who they are. They're probably in another country. But as long as you, let's say if it's Yelp, I think Yelp has, or Google or whoever has ways that you can contest that by giving them the proof, which is the email, to show that it's just extortion. But I don't know. I, I can't speak to that. But there are usually mechanisms in place to protect you from extortion. There are not mechanisms to protect you from accurate, though damaging, reviews. So I just remembered in our contract, we have a client release that states that anything that gets filmed at the wedding, we could use it for our own marketing and advertising. Some clients, they, I don't know if we talked about it already, but some clients, they suddenly decide to not show the wedding video publicly, but after the contract they signed, you know, how do you handle that? And then my other question is, sometimes there are kids in the video, and that's like a really tricky part for me because technically the couple signs for them because they release everyone, whoever's in the video, that's it. Can the law protect us from that? So from a broad standpoint, a release is basically an agreement between the videographer and the clients that the videographer will be allowed to use the images taken at the event of the clients in whatever format or venue that the videographer puts down in the release. So, for example, online marketing, Facebook, 
these type of things. That's the general idea of the release. The couple, they don't have the authority to release everybody there. That's not how things work. So the release that generally videographers get is of the two clients, the couple. And that's the safest way to do it. With regard to putting images up of groups of people, without getting their permission, the videographer is potentially liable for misappropriation of likeness because you didn't get a release from all the people that appear in the image. There's some case law that says that as long as you are standing in front of a camera, you are implicitly allowing the individual taking that to use your likeness. But these things all are very fluid. So the absolute safest thing to do is get permission from everybody that appears in that video. If that's not generally likely to happen, but that's the safest thing to do. With regard to children, I would generally not put children up. Each state has its different laws with regard to using the likeness of kids. So that's, you know, I would probably, if as much as you can, stick to the videos of the clients that are actually signing the contract. That's the safest thing I can tell you. Other than that, you're going to have to ask somebody that's really knee-deep in intellectual property. That's what that is. Wow, that's so scary. <laughs> so my last question before we go into the audience's questions is the distinction between employees and independent contractors, because this has always been an issue with people in the wedding industry. So is there a way that the employer can protect himself just in case a contractor decides to sue him? Well, from a broad standpoint, there's some major differences between an employee and an independent contractor. So the employee is going to fall under your fair labor laws, federal laws, and state laws. The state laws clearly are different from state to state. So that means that that's, you know, an employee, you might have to pay overtime. You might have to pay time and a half. Depending on how many employees you have, you might have to have workers' compensation for them in case they hurt themselves. With independent contractors, you're not dealing with those things. The other difference is generally under the concept of respondent superior, the torts and negligence committed by employees is passed up to the actual business itself. So when you walk into Walmart, and the staff member is mopping the floor and doesn't put the wet floor sign down, and you flip, slip and fall, Walmart can't say, well, that's the janitor's fault that was mopping the floor. That's not how it works. You sue Walmart for that because that person mopping the floor was an employee. Whereas generally, generally, the torts committed by independent contractors are the responsibility of the independent contractor. So the question then becomes... Who decides whether or not the individual that is working with you or for you is an employee or an independent contractor? And there is no bright line test. Just because your agreement says that they're an independent contractor, does it make it so? It generally comes down to how much control they exert over the work being done. So some of the factors would be, you know, are they wearing your uniform? Are they bringing their own equipment? Are you supplying them with equipment? Do they have a script that they have to maintain? You know, are you telling them what to say? These type of things. And just because you call them an independent contractor doesn't make it that so. And that's a huge issue with a lot of business owners. They don't realize 
is that they don't have independent contractors for the most part. They have employees. And when that employee falls down and hurts themselves is usually when that becomes an issue. It's like, well, I thought you're an independent contractor. It's like, no. The entity that decides that is the Department of Labor of your state and of the federal government. Yeah, that's a really tricky situation, and I'm glad that you touched upon that. Thank you for answering all my questions. Now, I have a few from the audience because they messaged me and they wanted to ask a few questions. First question is, I don't currently carry insurance. I ask for a non-refundable deposit instead of a retainer. What steps should I take to make a bulletproof contract that isn't so wordy that it scares my clients away? We pretty much answered the last question. I think the not carrying an insurance to have them sign something. So there's different types of insurance. And I think what this individual is talking about is wedding insurance, which is insurance that is purchased by the clients to protect them if they have to cancel the event due to different factors that would be governed by the particular coverage, the company that's providing the the policy. So, for example, military deployment, death in the family, that type of thing. So the insurance kicks in that the event is canceled because it's going on with the client, and the insurance company pays the client what they paid you for that non-refundable payment. So they don't even come after the videographer. They just make a claim with the insurance to get the money back. That can be a selling point if you as the videographer are having trouble closing these deals with these clients because of your non-refundable payment system and they're scared that like, well, what if I have to cancel? I'm not going to get this money back. You'd be like, well, for you know, 50 bucks, you can protect your entire wedding if you cancel the event, not just me. That might be something that makes it easier for you to close on the client. In terms of making it bulletproof, again, make sure the client understands which payments, if any, are non-refundable in what event they're not refundable and make sure that's spelled out why it's non-refundable. In other words, tell the client, this is not just a reservation of the date. Tell them that, you know, you're doing things that they don't see. You're coming out of pocket for secondary personnel. Maybe you've got to book lodging, blah, blah, blah. So there's things going on behind the scenes such that you will be hurt if the event is canceled and you'll be out time and money. So that's why it's non-refundable, blah, 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 things like that. So that's how you can you know, help shore up the enforceability of that particular provision. Another question is, can making your client sign a limited liability agreement up to the amount paid actually protect the vendor from someone else at the wedding suing for, say, an accident with a camera gear? Is that... If I understand understand correctly, is the limited liability clause enforceable? And generally speaking, it is, but it doesn't protect the videographer from everything. The videographer can't go up to somebody and smash them over the head with the video camera and just say, here's all your money back. So in short, it doesn't protect the videographer from claims of intentional torts. And depending on what state you're in, in most torts, and when I say tort, I mean negligence, like accidentally dropping the camera on somebody's foot, these type of things. Generally, the limited liability provision will protect you from if you're an hour late. And because you're an hour late, it causes the client to have to pay out an extra hour to all the other vendors and it comes out to be 10 times the amount they're going to pay you. 
in some instances, it sometimes protects against distress damages in, in cases. But so in, in short, it depends on what state you're in. But, you know, sometimes the limited liability clause is enforceable. Sometimes it's not. Let's go for the last question, which is the client has already paid the full amount up front. The contract says you'll deliver the final video in three weeks, but you deliver it late on the fourth. Do you owe them some money? Could they sue you for a full refund? What is fair to go about it for both parties? So there are things that are really important to these contracts and things that aren't quite as important. All right. So like, you know, making sure that you record the correct wedding is extremely important. That's what we call material. All right. You having black shoelaces instead of brown shoelaces is not material. It doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? So the reason why that's important is because there are some things that are material, some promises that are immaterial. The material promises that when you break them generally, that allows the other person to be discharged from any further duties under the contract. All right. And it allows you to immediately sue for breach of contract. Many states in their general contract law will supplying the client with the finished product a week late, although it's a breach, it's generally an immaterial breach. So could they sue you for breach of contract? Yes, but they would get nominal damages, meaning they would get like a dollar. There are some instances in which they can make that material that can get you for much more. There are words they can put in the contract that can make that material. But do you have to worry about that? And are you obligated to give them money back? Probably not. I wouldn't worry about that. If you lose the video, then yeah, you're in material breach and you better give some money back if you want to you know, keep from getting sued. At least for my experience in California, when there's a breach of contract, you have to return the full amount, I think. So these are really good. I, I want to ask you. if Well, let me yeah. let me just say this. Let me let me say this. OK, so look, let's say that you've lost that video. All right. So there are some states, there's some contract law that's like, you know, all right, you have to give back the full amount and that's the most you can get in damages. There are some states that would allow possibly more in damages. It just depends on the situation. So for example, if you recorded the wedding, right? And then you go, you know what? Here's your money back. I'm throwing this video into the San Francisco Bay. It, that's not going to be a matter of just giving the refund back. They can sue you for not just the money back, but probably some extra damages there. So don't operate, or at least I would highly recommend that you guys do not operate, you guys being videographers, do not operate under the idea that if I just don't show up, all I got to do is give back the contract value. You potentially could be on the hook for a lot more. How about for emotional damages? Is that like a thing? So it depends on the, the situation. There are cases from around the country that support the idea that when someone breaches the contract, but also breaches the contract in such a way that's very egregious, they can be liable for either negligent or intentional infliction of emotional distress. But it will depend on the facts of the case. But so like I said, you know, always do the best you can, you know, and don't be intentionally be a jerk and you should be safe from those particular types of claims. Okay.
Yeah, guys, just don't be jerks and make sure that you do this because you want to do the job properly. And these are things that are supposed to protect you and the client. So make sure that you have that in your head. Rob, is there anything else that you want to say? No, I, I think for videographers that uh, we touched on the important topics, money is important for every industry within the wedding industry. But on top of that, videographers need to make sure that they have the appropriate level of releases in their contract. And the other thing is, the, and I think this is, I don't know if we talked about this or not, but depending on what you're comfortable with, you want to let the client know that you are the exclusive videographer of the event. Because this issue is coming up, I feel like, more and more now that there are more economically, you know, it's not a bar for, you know, a planner or somebody else to get expensive video equipment. So the DJ might show up with a camera and start recording the event and then give it to the client. If you don't want that to happen, then you need to make sure that your contract says that, you know, to paraphrase, that you're the exclusive professional videographer and what the exclusive professional videographer actually means. Does it mean, you know, that you're paid money or that, you know, if the, if the DJ brings professional equipment, are they a professional, blah, blah, blah. You need to make sure that you're, everybody's on the same page, you know, that, that no one else is going to be taking moving images of that event except for you. Okay. I actually remember seeing someone on in one of the Facebook groups say that he was the videographer and then the DJ brought his own guys to film him. And after a few days, the videographers from the DJ created a highlight video and sent it to the bride. Everyone in the forum was just like, eh, well, you just got to take it as a loss because there's nothing you can do. So, you know, those situations, it's really tricky, especially. Yeah. If, yeah. Well, the number one thing I would say for, for that individual is to make sure that you have that in your contract with the client. So the client understands that you're the only professional there. And I'm talking about guests with iPhones, because if a guest with an iPhone is competing with you, then you just need to drop out of the business. But <laughs> that the client understands that you're the professional videographer and that she needs she or he needs to make sure that all the other vendors, if they're not going to be videotaping the event, that they're not going to hire other videographers to do the event, even if it's for their own promotion, even if it's like, well, my videographer is only going to record me as the DJ. They're not going to get the crowd blah, blah. You need to make sure the client understands that up front that they're not allowed to do that. However, let's say that you do that. Let's say that as a videographer, you have that in your contract, you the exclusive videographer, the client's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. And then you show up to your event and the DJ has hired his own, his or her own professional videographer. Who do you sue? You have to sue the client. You can't sue the DJ because it's the client that is in breach of that contract. So in reality, you can have that in your contract, but you got to make sure that the real thing that you need to do is make sure that you communicate why you have it in there and you need to reiterate it with the client so that they know to be on the lookout for that in the future contracts they might sign. Okay. Well, it's just so tricky, you know, because when that happens, I couldn't imagine myself suing the client. But just make sure, guys, that you protect yourself and make sure that everything is clear in your contract saying that you are the sole videographer and you have to define what that means. And yeah. with that, Rob, you just clarified so many questions that people have. 
and I'm pretty right. sure I'm pretty sure everyone appreciates it. So I right, and and there's and I hate to interject there, but like yeah. just in case we didn't get into something that a listener wants to learn more about, or maybe we didn't get we didn't talk about something in the breadth that somebody wanted. My blog, which is WeddingIndustryLaw.com, has covered everything that we've talked about today in much more depth. So they're more than welcome to go and just look at that site. It's WeddingIndustryLaw.com. So yeah, people can get a hold of me through WeddingIndustryLaw.com. Unfortunately, I can't respond to requests for legal advice unless I'm retained as a lawyer. But also, I have a website called WedForms. That's W-E-D-F-O-R-M-Z.com, WedForms.com, which people can buy templates, contract templates, straight from the website. And I'm going to put all of the links that he just mentioned on the show notes, just so you could, you guys could click on it. Thank you so much, Rob. All the best. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you very much. There you have it. I hope we answered your questions and made everything clearer. Contracts can be a pain. Just make sure you communicate the terms and conditions properly. Managing your client's expectations allows you to provide them with good service and turn them into raving fans. I'd love to know how this episode was for you, so feel free to reach out if you have any questions or suggestions. I'm throwing all these information goldens for free, so I'd really appreciate it if you help me by subscribing, rating, or leaving a review. Heck, you could do all three. Thanks so much for those who already did it. Thanks for listening. It means the world to me. Watch out for the next episode of the Wedding Video Boss podcast. Till then, play nice if you can't win. Be nice, especially if you're good looking. Boss man, out. Video Boss Podcast. Till then, play nice if you can't win. Be nice, especially if you're good looking. Boss man, out.